Good morning. I must say, having spoken in about 430 Unitarian Universalist churches over the course of the last decade, to see this many people in church in August is pretty great. <laughs> In fact, I don't know if you saw the New York Times had an article on Unitarian Universalism uh, yesterday uh, in the op-ed section. I'd like to speak this morning about a story big enough to include us all. And the reason that I picked this topic, the reason that I have a particular passion about this message, is because our our main story, our story that helps us know who we are, where we are in time and place, what, if any, trajectory their life seems to be on, and how we fit in. This is a fundamentally important story. Chimpanzees and bonobos and gorillas and whales and dolphins don't need a story to unite them. But with verbal symbolic speech, when we start thinking in words and speaking in words to communicate, and we start organizing ourselves at larger scales than we find dolphins or whales or chimpanzees or gorillas, we need a story that can unite us to help us live in right relationship to reality. And that's really what it's all about. How do we live in right relationship to what's fundamentally, undeniably, inescapably real? In fact, one of my favorite quotes, I often will use it as scripture, is from philosopher of religion, Loyal Rue, in his book called Religion is Not About God. Now, what he means is religion is about right relationship to reality. And, of course, reality has been personified as the various gods and goddesses all over the world in all different traditions. But when we realize that religion is about right relationship to reality, in fact, here's the quote. He says, the most profound insight in the history of humanity, okay, this is a big claim he's making, is that we should seek to live in accord with reality. Indeed, living in harmony with reality may be accepted as a formal definition of wisdom. If we live at odds with reality, foolishly, then we will be doomed. But if we live in right relationship to reality, wisely, then we will be saved. And he goes on to talk about the challenges that we have so many different competing stories around the world about what reality, what ultimate reality is like, and what reality said and did, and what it takes to live in right relationship to reality. But this makes complete sense when we realize that people living in a desert, or people living in a jungle, or people living in a mountainous northern region, or people living 500,000 years ago, or 50 years ago, or 500 years ago, are experiencing a different aspect of reality. So the stories that they would tell that would help them unite and sacrifice for each other and live in, in all sacred stories, all religious stories, basically function in two ways. They provide a mythic map of what's real and what's important, how things are and which things matter, that if you align your life and your society with that mythic map, that inner GPS, you'll experience personal wholeness and social coherence. That's what all religions do. That's the evolutionary role of religion. You can't understand any one religion if you don't understand the evolutionary significance of all religions. Religions have helped human beings cooperate at scales like 10,000 people or a million people that would have never happened simply on biological instincts. 
And so a story now, however, we don't need just a Chinese story or South American story or, you know, a Palestinian story. We need a story big enough to include us all. We need a story that can help us see who we are, where we are, and how to move forward in some kind of a healthy way that unites us as a species. In other words, it, smaller in-group, out-group mentality will no longer serve. It will kill us. In a world where weapons of mass destruction keep getting smaller and smaller, smarter and smarter, ever more powerful, and ever more easy to obtain, if our sense of the in-group is just the people who believe like us, and everybody else is going to hell in a handbasket, we're in deep trouble. And so where universalism, and, uni- and, 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 and when, I, when I speak myself proudly as a universalist, it's the universe I'm talking about, is that we, we who embrace this story that science gives, that evidence gives, is a story that unites all of humanity in our diversity. In other words, our differences are not a problem to be solved. Our differences are a solution to our problems. And that's something new under the sun. That's something that typically religious traditions around the world have not had. They've had parochial stories, smaller regional collective intelligence. See, every religious tradition reflects the collective intelligence of that region. And they use metaphors and analogies to talk about reality and what it means to live in right relationship to reality that, are, that make sense given that region. For example, if, you know, if we over here had never experienced sheep, the Lamb of God wouldn't be a part of our story. It wouldn't be part of our sacred story. You know? If, if we over here had never experienced the political reality of, of a king... The kingdom of God would make no sense whatsoever. So all religions use metaphors and analogies. And what we now need is a story. Unfortunately, we have a story that does include us all. It's called by many names. Harvard uh, biologist E.O. Wilson calls it the epic of evolution. It's also called the great story, the universe story. It's now, in academic circles, it's now being called big history. It's the history of everyone and everything that science gives, that evidence gives. It's physical evolution, biological evolution, and cultural evolution as humanity's first and only evidence-based creation story. And one of the things I love about you all as a congregation personifying reality as love, capital L, love, is that it it, it helps us get beyond sort of the trip-ups of our mind where we think we know what the word God or what ultimate reality is like. Because, in fact, reality will always transcend whatever we can know, think, or imagine about it. But we're also not separate from it. We're an expression of it. One of the things that there's no scientific disagreement about anywhere in the world that I know is this understanding that humans are not separate from nature, that the universe has been expanding for 14 billion years, or 13.7 to be more precise, and... And then in this this solar system, the universe became complex enough that the universe could begin to contemplate its own nature. The universe has gone from simple atoms to more complex atoms, to molecules, to more complex molecules, to creatures, to more complex creatures, to societies and more complex societies. And we are that process now becoming aware of itself. Human beings are literally the universe looking at itself and just going, Whoa. 
a biologist looking through a microscope is the planet Earth learning with awareness, Gaia learning with awareness, with consciousness, how it's functioned unconsciously and instinctually for billions of years. Brian Swim is a cosmologist. He's a, he's a professor of cosmology out in California. He's got these two fabulous quotes. I love them. I, I use these everywhere. He's, he says, four billion years ago, the earth was molten rock, and now it sings opera. <laughs> earth was once molten rock, now it sings opera. And see, nobody put anything here. When the Bible, Genesis 2-7, speaks of God forming us from the dust of the ground and breathing into us the breath of life, that's a mythic or poetic way of describing the fact that we go out of the dynamics of the planet itself and it's reality as a whole that made that possible. I mean, how could Moses have said it any other way, assuming he wrote that? Now, here's another one of my favorite quotes from Brian Swim, but this one's a little, a little more audacious. He tries, by the way, I love I've got so much room to work with here. <laughs> you know, some churches have these little dinky little spaces. It's great. Uh, it, 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 yeah. <laughs> the second quote from Brian Swim, he, he tries to take the whole history of the universe and sum it up in two sentences. He says, you take a great cloud of hydrogen gas and you just leave it alone. And it becomes rose bushes, giraffes, and human beings. Now, if that's not a process that could be legitimately called divine creativity, what is? And this story, this epic of evolution, this big history is helping us know who we are, but it's also not just that we are the universe, that we are nature, we're not separate from nature, but it's also helping us think differently about death. It's helping us think differently about human nature and why we struggle and suffer. And I'll be covering a lot of this tonight. But it also helps us know, and I'm not going to get into this tonight too much, how to move forward into a just, healthy, and sustainably life-giving future. See, if we're not aware of the trajectory, these patterns, it's called in big history, thresholds of complexity. If we're not aware of these thresholds of complexity that we're part of, and we don't learn from them, we're going to be clueless about how to move into a healthy future. But when we understand these thresholds of complexity and what has allowed for that to happen, then it becomes pretty clear how to align our laws, our medicine, our politics, our economics, our education with the way life works, to use mythic language, what God's been doing for billions of years, and then we can move into a healthy future because we're aligned with the real scriptures, that is nature, the universe, not just written texts. In fact, if I would say what excites me most about and what I've been preaching a lot about lately in terms of this, this story big enough to include us all is that it helps us get real about God, guidance, and good news. It helps us get real about God because we realize that the word God is not pointing to a supreme landlord residing off the planet and outside the universe, you know, who blesses some and smites others. That that's a trivial understanding of God. The word God has always and everywhere in every culture been a personification, not a person. A personification of reality, specifically. And so to talk about getting right with God is to, what does it take to be aligned with what's really undeniably, fundamentally, inescapably real? If we think of God as a person... We can't make sense of all the different competing religious stories all over the world about what God or the goddess supposedly said or did. It's like, what, does God have a multiple personality disorder? 
You know, God doesn't have schizophrenia. It's like reality has all these different faces. It, it's kind of like, you know, the, the, the story of the blind men and the elephant, that each of these blind men are, are holding on to or touching a different part of the elephant. And, of course, if those were five different theologians, you'd have five radically different theologies because they're experiencing a different face of reality, a different aspect of reality. So God is a personification, not a person. And this gives an actually a more reality-based understanding of God language for those of us who choose to use it, and some people don't, but that's okay too. Because as you all do here, capital L, love, capital R, reality, capital U, universe. You know what the Stoic Greeks talked about ultimate reality as? Cosmos, a proper name, an I-thou relationship. Not the cosmos, little c, no, capital K, cosmos, a living being that they were a part of. There's no one right way to talk about reality. But if we think God is up there, out there somewhere, outside the universe, see, that worldview only existed when we started having these things. Not wristwatches, but clocks, pendulum clocks. It was only about five or 600 years ago that we started using a clock as the primary metaphor for what reality was like. And then God became the clockmaker. God was simply the watchmaker outside that made this clockwork universe. And the big debate, does God intervene in his creation or does he not? Well, it's a total trivial understanding of both nature and God to think that it's simply a being up there out there somewhere. In fact, any time in any scriptures, anywhere in the world, where you read about, thus saith the Lord, or God spoke, or Krishna said, or any of the stories around the world about what Allah, or God, or the goddess, or any divine being said or did, if you could transport a TV crew to go back there, like let's say you got, you know, ABC News, you know, and they're, they're, they're covering this for the nightly news, right? And what we're actually reading is, thus saith the Lord. And then you've got like a paragraph that sounds like if somebody had a, 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 a uh, you know, a recorder, they were recording a bo voice booming from the sky, right? That ain't it. What you would be seeing in the nightly news is some guy, most likely it was a man, writing down on a piece of whatever they wrote with back then. And specifically, they were writing about how they interpreted reality. What was reality saying? What was reality doing? In other words, it's paying attention to the signs of the times and then giving voice to that. That's one of the reasons why I'm actually grateful for the new atheists, because I think they're functioning as modern-day prophets. That is, they're speaking the, the traditional role of the atheist. I mean, the traditional role of a prophet is somebody who sees what's real, who senses what's emerging, and then speaks a word of warning to the people, get right with reality, folks, or else. That's the basic stance of a prophet. We need to align with reality or perish. But we've got tens of millions of religious people around the world that their primary GPS, their inner map of what's real, is two or 3,000 years old. So their understanding of what's important is going to be skewed. Remember the two questions, what's real and what's important? Or how things are and which things matter. Those are the two fundamental questions. But if your understanding of how things are is two or 3,000 years old, it's kind of like 
Imagine that you were trying to drive from St. Louis, Missouri to Portland, Oregon, and you've got a map, you've got, an energy, you've got a GPS in your car that hasn't been updated since 1840. You've got a map of the Oregon Trail in there. Right? Now, how successful do you think you're going to be in getting to Portland? You ain't going to get there. And yet, we've got tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of religious people around the world that their inner map of what's real are two or 3,000 years old. Or in the case of Islam, you know, 1,500 years old. And so, this matters, folks. This matters. And having a story big enough to include us all is what we Unitarians and Universalists are on the fore... You know, we're, we're out there leading and saying that, no, these ancient maps, if interpreted literally, will kill us. It's not a surprise that America is not leading the world with regards to our response to climate change. Because one in three Americans believe these are the end times anyway, so why bother? This matters. And so I talk about how this big, this big history helps us get real about God. Let's take a look at guidance and good news, and let me conclude on those two. So guidance, where does reality guide us? How does reality guide us? Does guidance come from books? Does guidance come from books interpreted by hierarchies of men? In the West, our primary understanding over the last 17, 1800 years was that our best guidance for what's real and what's important, our most authoritative guidance came from the Catholic or the church hierarchy. So it was interpreting scriptures, but interpreted through the, the, uh, the ecclesiastical hierarchy of, the, of the, the, the Catholic leadership. And then the great Protestant Reformation. The early reformers were all about, no, no, no. Our best guidance doesn't come from these corrupt men. Our best guidance comes from the Bible. Solo scriptura. Only the Bible. And so the Bible became then the touchstone. If you want to understand what's real and what's important, you've got to go to the Bible. And so the Bible was translated into the common language. Everybody could read it for themselves and study it for themselves. And you've got all these different splintering groups of Protestant reformers and churches. And it's a wonderful heritage. But what we now understand and where universalism and Unitarianism is at the forefront is that our best guidance, our best understanding, our best inner GPS isn't from a hierarchy of men, isn't from any ancient text, no matter how held sacred. It's from scientific, historic, and cross-cultural evidence. Our best evidential understanding of reality is what's going to help us move forward into a just and healthy future, but also help us live kick-butt lives, like exciting lives, lives that thrive, where our relationships thrive, where we don't shoot ourselves in the foot and struggle and stumble and make all kinds of dumb promises that we can't keep and then break our word and we're out of integrity and we try to understand, what's that all about? We now don't have to have mythic understandings of what's driving us. We now have an evidential understanding, and that's what I'll be talking about tonight. We also don't have to have a mythic understanding of death any longer. We can have an evidential understanding of death that's sacred, that's holy, that's meaningful. And we get some pretty clear guidance for how to move forward into a healthy future. And the guidance is this. The most important thing that we learn from these thresholds of complexity is the need to align self-interest at multiple levels. So that 
pursuing the self-interest of the group, one is also pursuing one's own self-interest and vice versa. That's how complexity kept evolving. And what that means practically is that we need to structure our governmental and economic systems such that individuals, corporations, and nation states that do well to the larger common good benefit, and the more good they do, the more they benefit, so they're incentivized to do as much good as possible, and individuals, corporations, and nations that disregard or harm the common good are taxed or penalized or there's moral strictures, so that it's in their self-interest to do the right, just, ecological thing, and it's also in their self-interest to not do the unjust, unecological thing. See, right now, if I were to try to describe what I think is humanity's greatest immaturity, and I say immaturity rather than stupidity, I think we're young. The universe has not been thinking about itself through us very long. So we're just starting to wake up to who we are. But I think the greatest immaturity is this, is that we have an economic and political system where it's possible and it's profitable for a subset of the whole to benefit at the expense of the whole. It's possible and it's profitable for an individual or corporation to get wealthy at the expense of the larger body of life of which we're a part. And that is the fundamental thing that will shift when we realize that we've got a story not only big enough to include us all, but that gives us a a more reality-based understanding of God, but also gives us clear guidance for how to live great lives, have healthy relationships, how to die a peaceful death, and to leave a sweet legacy for future generations. So both individually and collectively, we get guidance from this story. And then finally, good news. I mentioned that this story big enough to include us all, gives us a more reality-based understanding of God, guidance, and good news. Well, the good news part, and I speak about this especially in Christian churches, but I'll just let you know how I do it, is I talk about that, you know, if the gospel, the great news, is merely understood as cosmic fire insurance, (laughs) you know, I mean, like, the great news is we get to avoid being tortured forever. That is such a pathetic understanding of the gospel. That's a pathetic understanding of good news. It's so much more real than that, individually and collectively. And this is what we get through this big history is we get some good news that's not merely about me as an individual being able to, you know, go to some place with pearly gates and, and, and you know, uh, that, let me, let, me, let me say something, because I, I don't want to be misunderstood, because sometimes around this point in the, my sermon, people think I'm mocking traditional religion, and I'm not meaning to do that. So let me be clear. What we think of as supernatural, what many people read in the Bible, or they hear the traditional stories about the supernatural, is in almost all cases pre-natural. It's before we could have possibly had a natural understanding. I mean, imagine trying to describe how the Atlantic Ocean was formed or the Great Lakes were formed or, you know, that mountain range over there 500 years ago. Imagine trying to describe how this big ball of flame and light and heat goes across the sky 600 years ago and trying to tell somebody about that without sounding any, without the language you use sounding supernatural. I'll save you time. You can't. Virtually all the stories about how things are and which things matter, especially about the natural world and our inner nature, use stories that were pre-natural. 
They weren't supernatural. They were pre-natural. In fact, the word supernatural didn't even come into existence until about 600 years ago because we started understanding things in a, super, in a natural way. So then there were a number of people that started saying that there needed to be a way of talking about that which transcended natural, that was more than natural. Prior to that, we used day language and night language. That is the language of, of our dreams and the language of everyday dif- discourse. But when you fly in your dreams, you are not having a supernatural experience. You're having an experience common to the dream state. And if you interpret supernatural language literally, then it's not only pre-natural, but it's unnatural. Anything that is supposedly supernatural is by definition unnatural. And unnatural, most people find relatively uninspiring when they really stop and think about it. For example... Does this sound like the gospel, the great news to you? An unnatural king who occasionally engages in unnatural acts, you know, supernatural interventions, sends his unnatural son to the earth in an unnatural way. He's born in unnatural birth, lives an unnatural life, does all sorts of unnatural deeds, suffers, dies, and is killed naturally in order to redeem humanity from an unnatural curse brought about by an unnaturally talking snake. He then zooms off to heaven in an unnatural way to sit on an unnatural throne, to go back to his unnatural father, and to unnaturally judge the living and the dead. And if you believe in all this unnatural activity, literally, you and your fellow believers get to go to an unnaturally boring place for an unnaturally long period of time, while everybody else suffers a torturous, unnatural hell forever. Now, if that's the good news... Is it, really, is, it, is it really a surprise that the new atheists are writing bestseller lists and that young people are leaving the churches by the millions? And so when I talk about this story big enough to include us all, it gives us a, a more real, a, I call it the realizing of God, guidance, and good news. The realizing of God, guidance, and good news. We can then have hope that escapes us. Natural hope, realistic hope, this world hope. I'm as religious as any other person. You'll see me, my hands are often raised. I just, I'm excited. I have an intimate relationship to reality. But I don't interpret it, I don't interpret any of it in an otherworldly or supernatural way. I'm a religious naturalist, not an unnaturalist. And, and, And I think that when we realize that science Evidence is like modern-day scripture. It's our best guidance. When I speak in Christian audiences, I say facts are God's native tongue. Evidence is our best source of divine guidance today. And when we realize that, I call it, I call it the, 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 the evidential reformation. And I'll conclude on this note. I think we are in the early stages of the evidential reformation, where our best understanding of what's real and what's important are not groups of men not the Bible or any other ancient text, but scientific, historic, and cross-cultural evidence. And then we realize that God, reality, has been as, is as active today and is communicating today just as much as any other time in human history. Because I think that a whole bunch of us are religious naturalists. We just never called ourselves that way. It's kind of like the difference between a fundamentalist Jew and a secular Jew. Secular Jews value the tradition, they value the the ritual, they value the language, they certainly value the community, they just don't interpret any of it in an otherworldly or supernatural or unnatural way anymore. 
And I think there's a growing number of us who are religious naturalists. And we maybe have a passion for our tradition and for community and for acts of service and justice and peace and sustainability. And we do it with religious passion. But it's this world guidance. It's this world heaven on earth that we're looking to co-create. And where we can have thriving relationships because we understand what's going on under the hood. We don't have to say, it's the homunculus that made me do it. Oh, it's those inner demons that made me do it. Oh, it's my unevolved ego that made me do it. No, we understand that we have mismatched instincts and we're surrounded by supernormal allurements. And we can understand what happens with things like testosterone and why we're all attracted to foods that have drugs, I mean, foods that have sugar, salts, and fats, and all the kind of things that we struggle with make so much sense when you see what evidence is being revealed about it. And that's, that's what I'll be covering tonight. If you know that you can't make it tonight, you've already got a commitment, Connie and I are evangelistic about this perspective, like literally. <laughs> so we want as many people as possible to be able to benefit from this and also share it with others. So we have three DVDs, and we give you the rights to make copies of our DVDs. You can make as many copies. You can burn copies, take them to Kinko's and have them make copies, whatever. It's a great way to share this perspective with your friends and neighbors and relatives. So if you know you can't be here tonight, I strongly encourage you to, to check out um, our DVDs. Because this is not just me and Connie. I think one of the reasons why my book was endorsed by six Nobel Prize winning scientists, as well as by theologians and rabbis and priests across the spectrum, is that it gives voice to this burgeoning movement of religious naturalism, sacred, evidential religion, in ways that can really help us work together, have great lives and work together for a healthy future. And so uh, I hope to see you tonight. I'd like to conclude with my favorite one-line scripture. Science. It's from Carl Sagan. St. Carl. <laughs> Science is at least in part informed worship. Science is at least in part informed worship. Thank you. <laughs>